Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. The last Book Collector Podcast of Anne Bear's Bibliovinets was too long ago, so we are informed by Judith Hopper, one of our listeners. We now present Sarah Bennett reading three more, Every Man's Daughter, Hare and Hounds, and Sinepa la Guerre. I know we say this every time for Anne's Bibliovinets, but it's worth repeating that Sheila Markham's article about her can be found in our autumn issue for 2014. Every Man's Daughter, Bibliovignettes 10, by Anne Bayer. I used to know Stella Rees, born about 1904, the youngest child of Ernest Rees, the editor of the Every Man series of reprints of the classics. Through her, I once met Ernest Rees at some summer social gathering in a garden in Wimbledon in the early 1940s. She, herself somewhat eccentric in those conventional days, was anxious that her rather senile father might behave in an unusual fashion. He seemed to me to be perfectly agreeable and chatty, but he wore a red-spotted handkerchief tied around his neck instead of a tie, and, when tired, for it was hot walking around the wide lawns, he lay down on the grass under a tree and fell asleep. Stella used to tell me little anecdotes from her past life. She once mentioned that J.M. Dent, the publisher of the Everyman Library, built his financial success by giving authors very stingy royalties. When an author asked for more, he would lay his head down on the blotter and sob and cry till the embarrassed author accepted his meagre offer. I had previously heard the same from my father, Frank Sidgwick. She also told me of when, many years earlier, she was in Ireland visiting an old peasant woman in her cottage. This woman had said, Oh, my old man himself, he was a long time a-dying, oh, a long time a-dying, till I could bear it no longer. So I took his big handkerchief and tied it loose round his neck, and I put a stick in the loop and twisted, and I twisted, and his spirit went away, as peaceful as a dove. I'm sure such secret murders were not uncommon over past centuries. In 1960, when my firm, Ganymede Press, was printing collar-type facsimiles for the Indian government of some of Rabindranath Tagore's strange watercolours, Stella informed me of an essay published in a book by her mother, which described a visit by Tagore to the Reese's house in Hampstead, and how he produced a small notebook from his pocket and showed it to her. Whenever he wanted to alter a word in what he had written, rather than cross it out, he made an elaborate drawing over it. This was many years before he started his serious paintings. In her essay, Grace Reese never mentioned Tagore's name, only I know an Indian poet. Had it not been for Stella showing me this long out-of-print essay, this explanation as to how and when the poet slowly became the artist as well might never have been known. As it was, it became the relevant passage in the catalogue of the Tagore centenary facsimiles. Once, reminiscing about her childhood in Hampstead, Stella told me of a day in the playground when one little boy, having just discovered the facts of life, was telling a group of enthralled children about the usual way of engendering babies, only to have the whole idea dismissed by another little boy who said, scornfully, What a ridiculous suggestion! He was called Evelyn Waugh. Hare and Hounds in the Lake District, Bibliovignettes 11, by Anne Bayer. 
As a child, I was vaguely aware that when he was young, my father, Frank Sidgwick, had had holidays in the Lake District. This was confirmed when I was about 14 by my overhearing him telling a visitor of holidays with groups of his Cambridge College friends playing some sort of hare and hounds game, chasing each other over wild fells. He described on one occasion seeing the man who was hare that day sitting by a stream. Thinking himself unobserved, he was scooping up mud and smearing it over his white shirt and shorts to make himself less conspicuous across the valley. I suppose this impressed me because here was an adult deliberately dirtying himself and my father not in the slightest disapproving. Many decades passed. In the late 1980s, my friends the painters Margaret and Lionel Bulmer, with whom I'd previously had holidays in the Yorkshire Dales, told me they had chanced to find a delightful little pub at Seatola in Borrowdale, but had only been able to spend one night there and longed to visit the area again. They asked if I would accompany them. I agreed and it was all booked. Lionel then told me that the pub had some connection with the Trevelyan family and Trinity College, Cambridge, and that every year, by long tradition, the whole pub was taken over for two weeks by a group from Cambridge and they played a variation of hare and hounds over the surrounding hills. My father's reminiscences came back to me and Lionel said he thought the landlord of the pub kept records of these events. In due course, we arrived there, and after an excellent dinner, cooked and served by the landlord, I told him I thought my father had years ago joined in the Hare and Hounds games. He at once asked me, was your father at Trinity? When? I said, yes, the first years of the century. He produced a battered suitcase full of old exercise books, selected one or two, and suggested I look through them. A few pages into the first book, I found a double-page spread, with dates listing the names of a dozen or so participants, who had been hair on which days, what birds had been seen, etc. All details neatly tabulated in my father's handwriting. Many of the names were familiar to me as friends of my father's and godparents of some of my siblings. One was A. A. Milne. I showed it to the Bulmers. Lionel said, unbelieving, But Anne, it's in your handwriting. The whole matter of inherited handwriting is mysterious such as that which crops up among members of my family, spread over generations and over continents, where direct influence never could have existed. Nicholas Barker touched on it in his article on Kenneth Williams' writing, from the book Collector, Spring 2013. John Knightley, in Jane Austen's Emma, says he often confuses his wife Isabella's handwriting with that of her sister Emma. In a very old photograph album, I later came across a photograph of this Trinity group, seated in front of this Seatoller pub. All the young men are wearing battered old hats and open neck shirts, most are smoking pipes. A. A. Milne is one of them, and this photograph is reproduced in Anne Thwaites' 1990 biography. Ce n'est pas la guerre. Bibliovignettes 12 by Anne Bayer. For people of my generation, those born during World War I, who began their education during the early 1920s, all our teachers were, inevitably, people who had been adult before that war. Though hardly a family existed then which had not lost a husband, father or son, they still were imbued with patriotism, my country and the British Empire, all unquestioned good things. It followed from this that The Charge of the Light Brigade, an ennobling poem by a famous poet, was suitable for children of both sexes to learn by heart and to recite at school assemblies. The book I had containing this poem was of large format and the colour illustration of it some 8 by 10 inches. 
This made more impression on my mind than the poem did. Under a thunderous dark sky, all was a mass of galloping horses, with flaring nostrils, wild eyes, ridden by men in dramatic uniforms, waving swords. Cannons spouted flames and smoke. The air was filled with flashing lights, scarlet and yellow. For years after any mention of the poem, this illustration came back vividly to me. Many decades passed. I was at a dinner in London. Among the guests were Philip Pouncey, the expert on Italian drawings in the Department of Prints and Drawings at the British Museum, his French wife and a young French woman who knew no English. So conversation was carried on in a mixture of French and English, the Pounceys being bilingual. Philip described how a colleague, also working in prints and drawings, greatly admired the work of Louis Laguerre. And if this man ever expressed admiration for the work of any other artist, Philip, in friendly mockery, would say to him, Oui, c'est magnifique. Mais ce n'est pas la guerre. This allusion was appreciated by all except the French girl. So Philip, in French, explained the quotation, the event, the French general's comment, and the charge of the light brigade. In doing so, he used the word légère. I, perhaps emboldened by wine, unwisely interrupted him. No, lumière. Incredulity at my ignorance soon turned to scorn, as it was explained to me that the brigade was light the opposite of the heavy brigade. I was astounded. The illustration in my schoolbook was still vivid. I had thought until then that the light brigade was in charge of the lights, as the fire brigade was for putting out fires. Since this discovery, the whole episode for me has been shorn of all drama. That was Sarah Bennett reading three more of Anne Bear's Bibliovinette. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.